Mysteries of ages past, unenlightened shadows cast down through all eternity. The crying of humanity. Tis then when the hurdy gurdy man comes singing songs of love. Then when the hurdy gurdy man comes singing songs of love. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Ghost Stories for the End of the World. Hope you're good. Uh, my friends, I know I said that we were leaving Europe for the time being, but... <clears throat> I've realized that just like when I visit Italy for real, I'm I'm not quite ready to say goodbye to it yet. Um, it feels like the accounts aren't fully settled and I feel like there's a loose thread or two that we need to tie up before we can actually journey to America. So tonight I want to talk about a book that I've mentioned before and it's a book that's been, it's been haunting me all year, which is The 20 Days of Turin and it's a uh, it's the work of occult visionary genius by Giorgio Di Maria. But I also want to talk to you about a real story too, which is the life and times of Peppino Impostato. I know that, you know, on the surface, they don't have much in common with each other. But all year long, when I've thought of one, I've invariably thought of the other as well. And I'm hoping that I can use this episode to kind of maybe clarify why that is, figure out why I keep associating one with the other. Um, it's basically this episode is kind of a leap of faith that we need to take together. But I'm hoping that on the other side of it, you know, that leap of faith will have been rewarded. So, uh, yeah, Peppino Impostata has been on my mind ever since I read about the death of a guy called Salvatore Ricciardi earlier this year. Now, Ricciardi had been a member of the Red Brigades. I think he did something like 30 years for his role in their campaign through, you know, the, the 70s. And I only found out he died because uh, someone I know from here and there, uh, someone who was actually a, an early supporter of this show, uh, they sent me a link to a letter that one of Ricciardi's old comrades had sent to him while he was in hospital. Now, I'm not, uh, I'm not going to shout that person out on here because I don't know if they'd be cool with it or not. But if you're listening, then hello and thanks for the link. Um, so yeah, uh, Ricciardi's death got me thinking about Pepino Impostato. Um, Probably, you know, because they were both left-wing radicals and they got caught up in, in the years of lead kind of thing. And also because of the pandemic, I've had the chance to catch up on, on a lot of reading as well. And my job means I have to work all kinds of shifts. And, and right at the start of the lockdown here in the UK, I found out that there was finally a good English language translation of the 20 Days of Turin available. And... It's actually been out for a couple of years now, but I'd already read it a long time ago. Uh, back then, it was this shitty amateur translation in PDF that I found on the internet back when forums were still the main way that we all talked to each other. 
uh, I remember being creeped out by it, but not much else. And I got that it was a loose commentary on Italy's years of lead, but I was only like 18 or 19 at the time. And I didn't know anything about that period. So I didn't really think too much about it. It wasn't until I bought the official translated version of it this year, uh, translated by Raymond Glazov, no less. I think you might remember him if you ever read The Exiled Online back in the day. Uh, he was their book critic. He was great. Um, but yeah, it wasn't until I read his translation of it that I became obsessed with it. And I ended up devouring it over the course of like five or six night shifts. And this was also just as uh, coronavirus was closing in. Uh, and it was just as Italian doctors were on the evening news in Britain every night issuing these grave warnings about um, the risk that was posed by, by COVID-19. So because of all this and because of this show, for the last few months, I've kind of had all of this swirling around in my head. Peppino Impostato, COVID-19, the Red Brigades, the 20 Days of Turin. And I got some of it off my chest with the Aldo Moro episode, but it's still been on my mind. The 20 Days of Turin is a pretty simple story on the surface. It's subtitled A Report from the End of the Century. So we can assume it, it, it's set in about, I don't know, 98, 99, something like that. And it's about a journalist who's writing an account of a mysterious series of murders that took place about 10 years before in Turin, <laughs> naturally. And it was, during a, it was also during an insomnia epidemic that had left lots of people in the city with nothing to do at night except wander the streets, sleepless, in something kind of like a fugue state. And the 20 days part of the title refers to, you know, how long the insomnia epidemic lasted. And this is when most of the murders occur. Uh, the victims are usually found smashed to pieces the next morning. But there's nothing simple at all about the story when you move deeper into it. For, uh, for one thing, the journalist may not be a journalist at all, since the only thing we actually know for sure is that he's working on a project about the killings and he loves to play back on his recorder. And then there's the way that the statues in the city seem to change which direction they're facing and even switch places with other statues nearby without anybody noticing. And then there's this mysterious institution called the library, which was founded by a group of unnervingly well-presented young men just before the killings began. And the authorities eventually theorized that the library could well be the cause of the insomnia epidemic. And it may also be connected somehow to the killings. So they shut it down and they destroy the archives. Or at least that's what they say they've done, destroyed the archives. But 
you know, as the journalist continues to research the 20 days, he discovers that some of the library's contents might have actually survived. So I guess I should point out here that there will be spoilers in this episode. Uh, pretty big, major spoilers as well. So if you were planning on reading The 20 Days of Turin and you don't want spoilers, you're probably best giving this episode a miss because I, I can't be bothered going through and figuring out which time markers I need to put in to tell you when I'm going to ruin a big plot point or something. So I apologize about that. But, you know, suffice to say, the book does not have a happy ending. But, you know, if you thought we were discussing a book with a happy ending, you probably got lost on the way to a different show. <laughs> so 20 Days of Turin was published in 1975. And that was the same year that Peppino Impastato set up a cultural group called Music and Culture with a bunch of his friends who were radical activists like him. And I'm genuinely curious to know whether Peppino and his friends ever discussed the 20 Days of Turin at one of their meetings. And I guess I, I would love to know what they made of it if they did. And 1975, as we know, is smack bang in the middle of Italy's years of lead, where bombs are exploding all over the country and there's shootouts and assassinations that have just become a kind of normal part of life. And it was kind of a a peak time of of intrigue and paranoia. And Peppino was right at the heart of the revolutionary movement in Sicily. And he was born in the town of Chinisi uh, in 1948. And Chinisi falls within the larger metropolitan area of Palermo. And as we've discussed before, Palermo is effectively the capital city of the Sicilian mafia. And Impostato was a committed communist and a revolutionary, but in becoming one, he'd had to reject his entire background, like an entire system of values that he'd been raised with because he was born into the most mafia-saturated environment it's possible to imagine. Virtually all of his male relatives, his dad, his uncles, his cousins, his in-laws, they were all made guys or associates in the Chinese clan. And he was raised to you know, live by the, the code of omerta and to believe in the, the mafia's code of honor. And I imagine it was expected that when he was the right age, he'd go through the initiation ritual as well. And for an idea of what kind of environment Peppino grew up in, have a listen to what his mother later said about their home life. And quote, when my husband came home after work, I used to piss myself. One of his uncles was a mafiosi called Cesar Manzella, and Manzella had bounced between Italy and the States throughout the 40s and 50s. And he became a major heroin dealer and a member of the Sicilian Commission. And he was described by the Chinese cops as a ruthless but cunning fellow. Uh, he was known to send food and money to families who fell on hard times in the neighborhood. And he would politely decline all their attempts to pay him back once they got back on their feet. And he also used his profits from his heroin trafficking business to fund the building and operation of an orphanage in Palermo. And Peppino, by all accounts, had a pretty good relationship with his uncle Caesar. But in 1963, when Peppino was 15 years old, Manzella was killed by a car bomb during the first mafia war. And Peppino heard grisly rumors that pieces of his uncle had been found plastered against lemon trees a mile away from the bombing. And when he asked another one of his mobster uncles if Manzella had suffered, the uncle told him it was probably over in a second. 
And But the incident seems to have been a clarifying moment for Peppina. And it was kind of a catalyst which led him to begin questioning all these values that he'd been raised with. And pretty soon, he found himself drawn to the radical Sicilian workers' movement and eventually to communism. And he snagged himself a copy of Lenin's What is to be Done? And he found a cause. And from that point forward, he dedicated himself to the overthrow of capitalism and the destruction of the mafia. And I think, obviously, in his mind, capitalism and the mafia were one and the same thing. And, you know, there's a fair few scholars and academics that would probably agree with him about that. And the kind of radical cultural group that Peppino set up in Sicily was common almost everywhere in Italy and Europe during the 70s. Uh, Giorgio Di Maria was also a member of a group of leftist artists and academics and activists that included people like Umberto Eco and Italo Calvino. And this was called, and here we go again, uh, forgive my pronunciation of this, this group was called the Canta Cronacci. And in the straight world, Di Maria was a terrible employee uh, who was known to turn up to work in his pajamas hungover or stoned out of his mind. He worked as an office manager at Fiat for a while, and even though he married the daughter of a Fiat executive, he was still regularly called into disciplinary meetings at the head office because of his appalling attendance record and terrible timekeeping. But on the avant-garde cultural scene in Italy, he was quickly making a name for himself as a remarkably prescient writer who was managing to channel the, the volatile, dark atmosphere of Cold War Italy into these Kafka-type works of genius literature, you know. And the 20 Days of Turin is pretty much the peak of his creativity. This is Di Maria operating with all cylinders firing. And it more than any other work that he produced, this demonstrates this ability of his to channel these impressionistic visions of the future. So take the concept of the library, which plays such an important but kind of mysterious role in the story. And Di Maria's protagonist says that it was founded in the aftermath of an economic downturn in the north of Italy that saw huge numbers of factories close and businesses go bankrupt. And with the social fabric of Turin lying in tatters due to an exodus of people looking for work, uh, the library is founded. And have a listen to how the, the unnamed protagonist describes it. Uh, quote, It was presented as a good cause, created in the hope of encouraging people to be more open with each other. Its creators were little more than boys, perky, smiling youngsters, well-groomed and well-dressed. They looked designed to win people's trust. And who wouldn't trust a cheerful, articulate young man who came calling at your door, chatting with you about the meaning of life, about all the hunger and suffering in the world? It's true, it was whispered that dark forces acted behind them. National and international groups hungry for vengeance after certain recent defeats. But who could believe such things in front of polite young lads who always looked you in the eye and shook your hand? Uh, for a small fee then, anybody can go to the library and they can write whatever they like in perfect anonymity, uh, if they choose anonymity that is and what they write will be archived and available to be read by anybody else and to find out the identity of who wrote a particular piece you just pay a little bit more money and there you go you get their name and at first the things that people write are relatively 
inconsequential or trivial from bitching about annoying neighbors or lovers or work colleagues to, you know, attempts at bad stories and poetry or shopping lists or whatever. But eventually the majority of the content becomes dominated by these bizarre, disturbing, psychotic, homicidal screeds that go on for hundreds of pages. And so we have a situation where Ordinary people, day in and day out, are going into the library to fill notebooks with their darkest and most depraved fantasies. So yeah, for all intents and purposes here, Di Maria has just predicted what the internet will become, or specifically social media, and the bright young men could be any given group of Silicon Valley startup bros. Uh, you know, the kind of guys who are obsessed with disruption, who promise users a vision of utopia and greater connectedness, but of course have ulterior motives. And in this reading, I mean, the dark forces that Di Maria's protagonist says might be funding the library. Obviously at the time we assume that Di Maria is thinking of, you know, the, the neo-fascist underground in Italy and, you know, the rumored existence of things like p2 masonic lodge and i'm sure even operation gladio was you know suspected to exist at that time but in a modern context we can see these dark forces as being analogous to the u.s security state which works very closely with platforms like facebook and twitter to develop better surveillance apparatus and data harvesting programs and I said earlier that I was mildly creeped out by the 20 days of Turin back when I was like 18 or 19, but purely, you know, just for the surface level aesthetics of the plot. But reading passages like the one that I just quoted on the other side of 10 years worth of leaks from people inside the NSA, the CIA and Silicon Valley itself, well, it gives me chills now, folks, to read stuff like that remarkable how you managed to just nail it in, in the space of a paragraph what would be what was coming and as far as the effect that the library has on the people who create or consume the content here's the experience of an anonymous author who gives herself the nom de plume of Evelina quote the totality of the confessions that she'd poured out of herself had given her a feeling of being drained empty voided like there was nothing to scrape from the bottom of the barrel, like the riverbed had dried out. And now she was thirsty, and she really wanted to get some sleep. But thirsty for what? And what dreams could she nod off to? When the protagonist interviews the sister of the first victim of the murders, she describes him feeling similarly hollow and empty. Uh, so I'll condense a, a pretty long passage for the sake of time here. Quote, Giovanni hadn't slept for a week. He felt tired, but he could never quite fall asleep. He spoke of a very deep lake, a lake that had dried out. He said even if the water came back, he wouldn't be able to immerse himself. He felt there was no real difference between the depth of the lake and anything else. Not the city, not the asphalt, not this house. He couldn't sleep because he couldn't sink into his lake. He left the house that night because he hoped the streets, the squares, the avenues would restore something within him that had vanished. I guess the urge here would be to say, well, doesn't this sound a lot like someone who's spent too much time on the internet and can't connect to the real world anymore? But I think it goes a bit deeper than that because the people who spent the most time at the library 
are sleepless because they've poured so much of themselves into it and they've devoured so much of its content from the mundane to the profound to the terrifying to the outright disgusting and, and grotesque. So they can no longer discern the meaningful from the trivial and the library and its ever-growing archive of horror has traumatized the people who go there because of the paranoia and the alienation that seeing so much about themselves and their community has created. It's kind of tilted the world underneath their feet and they're viewing everything through the frame of what they know people are, you know, are like at their, when they think nobody's looking. And at the same time, the library has produced this flattening effect where one thing is no more or less significant than the next thing, which has left its visitors feeling hollowed out and numb and lost in a kind of anhedonia. And as Di Maria says, it becomes clear that, quote, the library is really for people with no desire at all for regular communication. And while they can still leave their houses, these people, and they can still wander the streets at night, when they can't sleep, what they can't do is get out of their own heads and reach out to the other insomniacs who are stumbling around the piazzas and the avenues alongside them and begin to try and, you know, fix each other's trauma. And, you know, in this extreme state of alienation, something steps out of the dark, the dark alleys and the dark side streets and selects a victim from the crowd at random while everybody else, you know, continues to circle the city squares, lost in their own pain and isolation, completely oblivious to the violence that's happening right beside them. In taking notes for this episode and trying to figure out why I kept associating Peppino Impostato with the 20 days of Turin and vice versa, this sense of alienation and being out of step with a place that is shaped by forces much bigger than any one person is the first time that I saw the connection between the two, or I suspect it is part of why I keep associating them both, because the subplot about the library and the real story of Peppino in Pastata are two contrasting accounts of how people who feel adrift and alienated in a violent environment can deal with it. Peppino must have initially had a similar feeling of disconnection from his community, but the more he read about the mafia and about capitalism and about Italian politics and about how they all overlapped, the, the clearer he became. That's the crucial difference between him and Di Maria's insomniacs who just retreat further and further into themselves while the horror unfolds around them. So... Impostata decided to reach out to like-minded radicals like himself and try to create something that resembled the world as he thought it should be. And in the early days of their movement against the mafia, Peppino's friends have since revealed that they were shocked to discover that the Carabinieri considered left-wing organizers and trade unionists and Impostato's crew in particular to be more disruptive and harmful to community cohesion than the mafia itself. And it was normal to see the local capos hanging out in bars or cafes with high-ranking cops and influential local DC politicians. It wasn't normal to see people organizing against the local clan, especially in a quiet place like Chinisi. So Peppino and his friends lent support to the, the trade unions and the other working class movements around Palermo. And 
they were they began protesting and picketing against the uh, businesses and the mobsters behind them that were uh, exploiting workers in the area. Uh, he created a radical newsletter in 1965, and he openly mocked the boss of the Chinese family, uh, Gaetano Badalamenti. Uh, we talked about him in the Matanza episode. And by the time that pivotal year of 1968 rolled around, you know, the year that revolution seemed like a, a genuine possibility across Europe and the States, Impostata was on the front lines of the peasant struggle against the mafia-backed developers who'd stolen their land to build another runway at the airport. And with his um, colleagues in the anti-mafia movement, he held these pretty big anti-mafia rallies and created dossiers of names and connections documenting how the mafia actually, uh, actually operated and how its smuggling routes and drug trafficking operations crisscross Sicily and the Italian mainland. And one of the riskier things that he did around this time is organize a public photo exhibition showing the devastating effects that the mafia's construction and waste management practices were having on the city of Palermo and the natural environment in Sicily. Uh, there's a picture you can find online actually of a bunch of Chinese mobsters uh, studying the photographs at the exhibition and their expressions are just cold and, and blank. There's just nothing there at all. In 1976, which is the year after he'd set up the music and culture group, Impostato created a pirate radio station called Radio Out. I think that's how it's pronounced, A-U-T, Out. Uh, he had his own show on there as well called Crazy Wave, which was a daily update on mafia activity and the workers' movement that kind of satirized the Chinese mafia and like venomously parodied uh, Gaetano Badalamenti in particular. Now, although he'd been banned from the family home for a couple of years by this point, uh, he kept in touch with his mother Felicia and his brother uh, Giovanni. And there's a story from around this period of time that eventually became a scene in a movie about Peppino's life. The story goes that he was hanging out with Giovanni one night at a little bar in the neighborhood and they'd had a few drinks and eventually on the way home, as always, talk turned to Peppino's anti-mafia activities. Now, although his mother and brother were very sympathetic to his politics and they felt just as oppressed by the mafia and its culture, they'd also grown like extremely concerned that he was painting a huge target on his back with the uh, radio broadcasts that he was putting out, the newsletters that he was publishing, and the snowballing kind of anti-mafia political activity that, it was, that he was involved with. And he'd also been a member of the Democrazia Proletaria, which is proletarian democracy. He'd also been a member of that party for quite a while by the late 70s. And he was thinking about running for a seat on the Chinese town council in the next election. But this would bring him into direct conflict with the DC and their kind of mob run political machine with its network of donors who all had a vested interest in keeping left wing influence out of politics, particularly when that left wing influence was exposing uh, the corruption and the scams that were going on on the daily. Peppino here is supposed to have listened to what his brother said 
and then he put an arm around Giovanni's shoulders and while counting out loud, they both walked the 100 paces from the family home to Gaetano Bardellamenti's front door. And Peppino was showing his brother that, I, th- I think he was showing him that he knew exactly how much danger he was in. And he also knew that that danger was practically on the family's front doorstep, but it had been like this their whole lives, you know? And in the movie, which is called A Hundred Steps, naturally, uh, Peppino takes this opportunity to kind of yell some insults and owns at Badalamenti's open bedroom window. But I don't know if this really happened in reality. But I do know that his brother, while still worried, felt a little bit more reassured that Peppino had a solid handle on the situation and that he thought about the risks before he decided to press ahead. Impostato probably figured that he was protected up to a certain point by his dad Luigi's connections. And there's another story I found, and I can't verify how true this is. Some of the mobsters in the Chinese crew who'd gone to see Peppino's mafia photography exhibition bumped into Peppino's dad at a bar, and they suggested that he correct. Uh, Peppino or else bury him in the ground and Luigi is supposed to have got into a fight with them over it and later testimony from Chinese clan members who turned state's witness confirms that he had actually taken quite a few risks to keep uh, his son safe during this period of time and then in September of 1977 Luigi Impostato was killed in a hit and run and the thinking is now that this actually was probably done on the orders of Gaetano Badalamenti so that Luigi wouldn't come seeking revenge for what was about to happen. Early in the 20 days of Turin, we find out that the authorities didn't actually manage to destroy all of the library's archives. And in fact, what remains of them is left in a pile under the ruins of the the sanatorium where the library was. And there's two board security guards who keep an eye on it around the clock, but the protagonist manages to pay them off so he can get get to the pile of uh, remaining documents. And Di Maria, uh, again, takes care to mention that Nobody knows who's paying these security guards. Nobody knows who hired them. Nobody knows when they started working there. They just appeared. And throughout this section, Di Maria is inserting all these little warnings about what's to come, and particularly here, I quote, It made me shudder to think that this mass of waste paper made up only the slightest portion of what once used to be the library. I recalled the library of Alexandria, whose conflagration had spared nothing. Here, fate proved to be milder, but in the name of what? It was hard to tell where to start searching, and there was also the danger that the whole lot would fall in on me like an avalanche. I plunged a hand randomly into the mound and, trusting my left forearm to secure the shaky structure, pulled hard enough to dislodge a few odds and ends. Now that entire passage 
is full of doom and bad omens from the reference to the library of Alexandria to the possibility that without a fixed plan, all the horror and chaos stored in the ruins of the library and everything that took place in Turin 10 years before will swamp the protagonist. And Di Maria even specifies that the protagonist uses his left forearm to hold up the stack. Left in Italian is sinistra, from which we derive the word sinister, meaning evil or malevolent events. And it's this ability that Di Maria has to balance these really insightful political and social observations with these schlocky little tidbits that it's another reason why I I can always reread this book. You know, if I've got nothing else on my reading list, I'll always come back to 20 Days of Turin. Um, and of course, if the 20 Days of Turin is well known for anything, it's how it channeled the atmosphere of Italy during the years of lead. Uh, the defining characteristic of the killers in Turin is how unknowable and mysterious they are, but how they're also part of everyday life in the city. Just like, you know, the local mafia capo who lives a hundred paces away from your front door. The danger is ever-present and all around you. And like a squad of mafia hitmen or a neo-fascist terror cell, uh, they appear, they kill, and they disappear again. They kind of dissolve back into the city. And all that's left behind are terrified witnesses and pools of blood. And the more the narrator digs into their identities, the more obscure they actually seem to become. It's one of those paradoxes of this story, but also dealing with this kind of history where there are so many wheels within wheels turning. And at one point, he's warned off his investigation by a nun from a place called the Little House of Divine Providence, which is a, a respite home. And she says, you are a kind person, sir, a good person. We would only prefer it if you showed more discretion towards those who now rest in eternal sleep. If, out of respect for their memory, you withdrew from probing into why certain poor souls have left this veil of tears. We feel your concern over the deceased might be a little more worldly than Christian. And I can't help but think how many times have people in Italy, like investigators and you know, the honest politicians and activists and bereaved relatives, how many times have they been warned in exactly the same way by someone who on the surface seems quite friendly even? You know, how many times have they, they been warned not to go prying into places that are best left alone and not to upset the delicate balance of all these different networks of power? And it's very interesting that Di Maria chooses a nun to deliver this this warning to the narrator because obviously we know by now about all the corruption that was going on and still going on to be fair in the catholic church and the grip that it had of italy particularly during this period of time and then you have to think you know how many times was Peppino impostata warned off uh, how how about the other figures that we've discussed in the last few episodes you know aldo moro Giovanni Falcone, Paolo Borsellino, and I'm seeing I'm seeing more and more resonances with Di Maria's book and the story of someone like Peppino Impastata as we go along here. But there are crucial differences too. Uh, for one thing, it's pretty clear that the real figures we've talked about uh, accepted the risks of what they were doing, but 
they felt, you know, because they felt like they were doing the right thing anyway. Whereas with Di Maria's protagonist, it starts to become obvious during the middle third of the book that despite all his high-minded aspirations and for all the interviews he's conducted and the clues that he's been gathering, his journey is changing from a serious attempt to put together a historical account of the 20 days to an all-consuming obsession. And he's left so unsettled by the things that he discovers that he can't take pleasure in everyday life anymore. Uh, And despite gathering a pile of witness accounts and theories and puzzle pieces, all he's ultimately left with are a number of incredibly disturbing and unsettling odds and ends, uh, just like he described back in the ruins of the library. But instead of walking away, he ends up going even deeper, uh, you know, and eventually he discovers clues as to the real identities of the killers and also finds out that the library still functions in a kind of ad hoc way and that people are still leaving anonymous messages hidden all around Turin for other people who are in on it to find and respond to. And this kind of anonymous communication network spreads out like an invisible web across the city because it's become an addiction now. Like the genie is it's out of the bottle. So I suppose it goes without saying then that the narrator doesn't listen to the nun's warning. And a little bit later, a lawyer that he's been corresponding with, someone who vaguely witnessed the very first murder 10 years before, uh, the lawyer tips him off that one of his clients, who's an art critic and a parapsychologist, he's got something pretty interesting to share with him. And this leads to one of the creepiest scenes in the book. Uh, The art critic puts me in mind of like, you know, that classic image of a a conspiracy theorist, like a lone kook kind of thing. Or, you know, one of those citizen journalists that you see online these days. And the art critic, the parapsychologist, he's been recording the ambient sounds of Turin as part of a project. And by chance, he's discovered some strange noises broadcasting at a frequency that only his microphones can pick up. And at first, they're just odd atonal grunts and drones but gradually the more he records the more he can pick out actual words and phrases but these voices aren't human although they're definitely communicating to each other And I'm curious if Di Maria had heard stories around this time about, you know, like ham radio operators who accidentally broke into number station broadcasts or Gladio communiques, because this scene definitely feels like it's supposed to be read that way. Someone accidentally uncovering something just vast and mysterious and terrifying. And what are the voices saying to each other? They're bragging about the people they've killed and they're trying to win arguments over who has it the worst out of all of them, who has the least privileged position in the city. And pretty soon after this, the protagonist starts to receive these strange letters from an interested party who wants to have a conversation with him. And the stranger describes how 
they are surrounded by garbage all day long. And this garbage is becoming a pile that will is rising and will soon cover them. So I guess this is the biggest spoiler of the show. So skip the next minute or two if you don't want to know what was actually killing the citizens in Turin during the insomnia epidemic. Although I figure you've probably already clocked what's going on. So are you ready? Okay. It's the statues. <laughs> it, the statues in Turin are coming to life and killing people at random. And that's why some of them seem to change position and which direction they're facing. Uh, that's in, that's a decent enough bit of schlock as it is, to my mind. But what Di Maria is actually doing here is using this as a way to talk about terrorism in Italy during the years of lead and terrorism more broadly throughout the 20th century. Because like when he described the library as being funded by dark forces looking for revenge after, uh, you know, certain recent defeats, the statues are another way to tell us that the past is never quite as dead or inanimate as we think it is and that at any moment really it can explode violently into the present in a frightening and bewildering way. But what Di Maria was also savvy enough to do is avoid pinning the killings directly to any specific ideology or tying them explicitly to the years of lead and in the way that the statues act alone and independently of one another, you know, later bragging about what they've done. He's kind of cannily anticipating what terrorism will look like in the future. Because I suppose now a lot of people think of 9-11 as marking the transition from the 20th century to the 21st, but the attacks themselves represent a form of terrorism that is pretty rare these days. Because now we mostly have like lone wolf terrorists who like, plan their attacks in isolation. And as far as what the statues are actually saying to each other, bragging about how bad they've got it, while the ordinary citizens of Turin go about their day completely oblivious to all these com conversations, that's another weirdly accurate prediction about where things were going. Uh, think about people like Dylan Roof, who shot up the church in Charleston in, in the States. Or think about Brenton Tarrant, who he committed those massacres at the mosques in, in Christchurch in New Zealand. And in both cases, these guys had put in serious hours on obscure message boards on the internet with, you know, like-minded neo-Nazis. And all of them spent their time just wallowing in self-pity and provoking each other towards actually going out and, and killing somebody. And the whole time they were talking in codes and memes that are just incomprehensible to most people, just like the, the grunts and the croaks of Di Maria's killers. And the 20 Days of Turin has probably one of the most mystifying endings of any book I've read. And I can't really do it justice to describe it here. Uh, if I did give you a summary, you might think it's a bit of a letdown or a disappointment but I am curious to know what you make of it if you read it, so do let me know. But without going into specifics, personally, I think I think it's a really well done bit of black comedy, and it seems to be suggesting that even, even when we think we've reached a moment of clarity, and as strange as that clarity might be, what's actually happening 
is that even more mysteries and questions and dangers are being uncovered. And we found ourselves in, in an even deeper part of the woods. And terrorism and the concept of the lone wolf terrorist also played a part in the story of Peppino Impostata, but in a different way. Uh, by 1978, he was campaigning as a, a proletarian democracy candidate to win a seat on Chinese Council. But the night of the 8th of May, 1978, he was kidnapped by a group of mafia hitmen and taken to an isolated shack by the railway lines running beside the airport. And there, they tortured him for an unknown amount of time before knocking him unconscious with a rock and laying him on the train tracks. And then they strapped sticks of dynamite to his body and detonated him. And in one of those strange coincidences that you find it quite a lot when you read about this period of Italian history, his remains were found on the tracks the same day that Aldo Moro's body was discovered in Rome. So naturally enough, mafia-friendly journalists, DC politicians and cops immediately set to work constructing a narrative where Impostata was a leftist fanatic who had been planning a suicide attack on a DC meeting. Uh, the Carabinieri raided the homes of Peppino's friends and relatives, you know, looking for anything to prove their version of what happened. Uh, they found a note he'd written to his aunt a month before. Uh, he was prone to bouts of depression and in this letter he described feeling like a failure uh, and that hinting that he'd be better off dead. And the cops kind of seized on this as a central piece of evidence supporting this suicidal lone wolf terrorist theory. And in what's now kind of a recurring theme for this show, the investigation was botched from the start. So forensics were mishandled and contaminated. Evidence was lost or disappeared and witness statements that challenged the official narrative were discarded. And Peppino's friends reported a series of weird breakings at their houses and apartments. And it was speculated that, you know, whoever was doing it was looking for his dossiers about the mafia and its connections to DC politicians. There's something like just over a thousand people attended his funeral. And they were carrying banners that said things like Peppino was killed by the mafia, uh, mafia killers out, that kind of thing. And naturally enough, they were all dismissed as conspiracy theorists who were living in denial and just kind of as a footnote as well here uh, five days after his death uh, Peppino Impostato actually won the election that he'd been running in he was voted on to the town council it took them and Peppino's mother and brother until 1984 to get the state to finally reopen the case and by this point Felicity and Giovanni Impostata had become figureheads of the anti-mafia movement and they disconnected completely from their mafia friends and relatives. A group of magistrates were appointed to investigate Peppino's death and they concluded that it was a mafia killing and not a failed suicide bombing, but there wasn't enough evidence to convict anybody. It took another 15 years and the testimony of about half a dozen uh, pentitae to put Don Badalamenti on trial for ordering Peppino's murder. Uh, but by this point, he was already doing time in the States for his part in a, a heroin trafficking scheme. But he was convicted in 2002 and given a life sentence. And I'm thinking again here about what Di Maria had to say about 
the past not being as dead as we sometimes want it to be and how that can lead to some pretty grim outcomes you know if we're not if we're not careful but it can also go the other way too when people suspect that the official narrative of a historical event is a fiction and they start digging deeper and deeper into it sometimes what seemed like a pure conspiracy theory turns out to have been true all along and that's how it went with Peppino Impastata and look at how like earlier this year Licio Gelli was finally judged to have been the prime mover behind the Bologna train station bombing or think about the Gladio revelations which confirmed that there really had been a deliberate campaign orchestrated by the state to carry out false flag terror bombings and attacks in Italy a strategy of tension to destabilize the country and prime it for a, a right-wing takeover. And in each case, the truth only came out because there were people who wouldn't stop prying and asking questions. And the problem for Di Maria's narrator is that he's never really sure what his objective is with his project about the 20 days beyond you know, just speculation and trying to get a good book out of it. And because he doesn't try hard enough to understand the forces at work, because he doesn't appreciate these forces and the danger that he's putting himself in, these forces eventually overwhelm him and destroy him. Now, believe it or not, I'm really not one for giving you like takes about contemporary politics or society, uh, even though that happened last episode and it's kind of about to happen here again. Um, I promise I, I will not make a habit out of this because I know you probably get enough of that elsewhere. But I do think that sometimes I run the risk on this show of kind of submerging myself and you in these weirder, bloodier parts of history or parapolitics or whatever you want to call it. And then that opens up another risk of falling into a hole where everything seems suspect and there's nothing positive to really draw from any of it but I believe I finally figured out why all year long I've been thinking of Peppino Impastato whenever I think about the 20 days of Turin and vice versa. Now these are two stories from the past and of course one is real and the other is fictional but in their own ways they have a lot to tell us about what was happening in Italy during a pretty dark period in its history. And now, as we are kind of standing on the edge of whatever comes next after a year like this one, a year like the one we've all had, where it feels like there are no brakes on this train and things are spinning faster and faster out of control, my feeling is that you can look at the 20 days of Turin and Peppino in Pastata's story as not just like tales from the past, but we can also look at them as two possible visions of the future. And in Di Maria's, we can move towards more alienation and apathy and random violence consumed by paranoia and our private obsessions and anxieties to the point where we find ourselves wandering around in a fugue state like his insomniacs, you know, barely paying attention to our surroundings, barely on nodding terms with reality. Or... If you look at the story of Peppino Impostata and, you know, forget his death for now because you can't define his life by how it ended. 
But if, if you look at his life, you see a story where a person found himself in a time and a place where it seemed like the walls were closing in around him. But he still kind of reached out beyond that and connected to something much bigger than himself. And in a way, he did manage to reshape his part of the world eventually. Now, the pessimist in me suspects that we are probably heading towards the former, but there is still a part of me that hopes we'll figure out how to achieve the latter. But I guess it all has to begin with that first step. Right, the hour has grown late, so we are definitely ready to move on now. Uh, what I'll be doing is I'm putting the show on pause for the next couple of weeks while I, I tighten up the structure of the Haunted America series. Uh, we'll be resuming operations on Halloween though, so keep the 31st in the diary. That's when the next episode will be out. But in the meantime, you can still issue communiques to the Truth Bunker by hitting us up at ghoststoriesend at gmail.com. And I, I try to answer every email I'm sent. So if you send me something and I don't respond, it's not because I've ignored it or whatever. It's just I genuinely have probably just missed it because I'm, I'm really terrible at checking my uh, emails and stuff. It's just a skill I never picked up for some reason. <laughs> so... Oh, I've just remembered as well, I forgot to do the book recommendations again, and I had actually promised somebody who emailed me last week that I would include some reading suggestions. So I might actually I might actually include some hot tips in like a quick dispatch, maybe next week or the week after. I think they call that a mini third in, in the podcast world. I don't know. But yeah, I, I'll I'll do that, I think. So until then, and as ever. Thanks for listening. Rate us on iTunes and subscribe to the show if you haven't already. Spread the word, urge on friends and loved ones, and don't get captured. We will rendezvous on Halloween. Cheers, guys. Here comes a roly-poly man and he's singing songs of love Roly-poly, roly-poly, roly-poly